Welcome to The Landscape, your show about America's parks and public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. And I'm Kate Gretzinger in Salt Lake City, Utah. Today, we are talking to two forest scientists about responsible forest management. That includes the recent announcement that the Forest Service plans to plant over a billion trees in the next decade. And we will ask them some burning questions, my apologies, like, is this all just a big logging industry handout? And can wild horses actually help with wildfire mitigation? But before that, let's do the news. All right. So our news this week is actually also forest related. Last week, a Forest Service employee in charge of a prescribed burn was arrested by a county sheriff after a burn in Malheur National Forest briefly escaped into a private ranch in Oregon. The fire burned about 20 acres of private land before firefighters got it under control within an hour. The owners of a nearby cattle ranch whose land was burned called the sheriff on the Forest Service team conducting the burn, and the sheriff arrested the Forest Service ranger in charge of the burn as his team was still working to contain the blaze. The Forest Service says that it was monitoring conditions and believed it was safe to burn, while the ranch owners say they asked the Forest Service to wait due to windy conditions. Experts worry that this incident will make it even more difficult to conduct prescribed burns in the future, after one in New Mexico got out of control earlier this year, leading to the largest fire in the state's history. Now you are probably thinking, Malheur National Forest, that must be close to the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge, where of course the Bundy family faced off against law enforcement in 2016. Yes, it is. Uh, This is in Grant County, which is where Ammon Bundy was trying to drive to when he was stopped by agents and Lavoie Finnegan was killed while he reached for a gun. It is adjacent to Harney County, which is where the wildlife refuge is. Now, it is not the same Grant County Sheriff. Back in 2016, the Bundys were trying to get to Sheriff Glenn Palmer, an extremist and so-called constitutional sheriff who thinks that local sheriffs have authority over federal law. Now, just to be clear, that is nonsense. The word sheriff, of course, never even appears in the Constitution, and the Supremacy Clause of the Constitution makes it clear that federal law, including the Constitution, do take precedence over state and local law. Now, Glenn Palmer lost his re-election bid in 2020 to Todd McKinley, a deputy of his who ran on a platform promising less bombast and extremism. But it was McKinley who just took things to the next level by not only arresting a Forest Service employee who was doing his job, but making that arrest, as Kate noted, while the fire was still burning, putting fire crews and land at even more risk. So this case is now in the hands of the district attorney, who has already suggested that because the Forest Service was performing a prescribed burn, he could actually raise the standard to which he will hold the burn boss in considering possible charges. Stay tuned on this one, because it is a case that could have ramifications for years to come. Today we're joined by two forest experts to talk about forest management in a time of perennial wildfire and climate change. Specifically, we're going to talk about the Forest Service's recently announced plans to plant a billion trees over the next decade, as well as how climate change is affecting forest recovery after wildfires. Megan Katu is an assistant professor of human environment systems at Boise State University. She uses geospatial techniques on large data sets to explore patterns of forest disturbance and recovery. Welcome to the podcast, Megan. Thanks for having me. Nayani Ilangakun is a postdoctoral associate at University of Colorado Boulder's Earth Lab. 
She uses remote sensing technology to research the post-fire recovery of western conifer forests. Nayani, thanks for being here today. Hi, Kate. Thanks for having me today. Awesome. So let's start with you, Megan. Um, you are a disturbance ecologist. Tell us a little bit about what that means. Generally speaking, a disturbance is an event that causes ecological change and that has potential to have profound effects on social and ecological systems. This can be a discrete event or a pulse event like a wildfire, or it can be a press disturbance that exerts continual pressure on an ecosystem like climate change. Disturbance ecologists evaluate these events, including the patterns and the processes of the events themselves, called disturbance regimes, as well as interactions between disturbance events and other environmental or social factors. So disturbances have played a, a large role in shaping ecological structure over evolutionary time, from individual populations to entire ecosystems. And disturbance ecology is a useful lens to understand how disturbance regimes are changing, particularly given climate forcing and other environmental change, and how we might promote resilient ecosystems and communities. So I'm interested in understanding how disturbance regimes themselves are changing, and I've been primarily focused on wildfire, uh, as well as the efficacy of management interventions aimed at social ecological recovery. And methodologically, I employ remote sensing and geospatial analysis to look at these questions, and I'm also interested in science art synergies. Awesome. That's, that sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> um, Nayani, you also work on forest recovery, and it sounds like you do some similar work to Megan. Um, can you tell us more about your research? I read that you have a focus on remote sensing, which sounds interesting. Certainly, yes. As you just said, uh, I'm studying forest recovery, especially uh, carbon recovery after fires in western U.S. conifer forest, and I use observations from both the satellites and drones. The satellite data is from NASA's Global Ecosystem Dynamics Investigation, or we call it JEDI. This JEDI mission provides estimates of tree heights as well as the canopy cover and also uh, some measurements that we could infer about the canopy density. The increase in vegetation structure, for example, the tree height, tells us about the forest growth. And if the changes are after a fire, it tells us about the vegetation regeneration. Similar to the satellite data, we collect drone images over some of the burnt areas across western U.S. and then process them to extract the same measurements like the individual tree heights, the canopy area, and where the saplings are in space with respect to the fire boundary. Then I use these satellite and drone-based tree estimates to model their changes with time to evaluate the forest recovery. And I then incorporate these models with the climate data, such as the drought occurrences, and the fire data like the fire size and its severity, and uh, sometimes the topographic characteristics, such as the altitude, the ground slope, to see which of these factors control the forest fire uh, tree generation and the carbon recovery the most. And that's what I do. So that, so that's all the science that is going into this research, let's take all of that data and try and, and summarize it. Uh, we'll start with, with Megan. Obviously, we've heard about how wildfires are burning hotter thanks to climate change, thanks to overgrown forests, thanks to a century of, of mismanagement or putting out fires too soon. So what are you seeing in your research? Are, are we... 
are we learning about how forests grow back differently now than, say, they did even 15, 20 years ago? As you mentioned, the, the reality is that climate change is resulting in more frequent and more extreme disturbances that are harder to recover from. So we're seeing increasingly arid conditions with hotter temperatures and earlier snowmelt. You know, we're seeing larger and in some cases more severe and intense wildfires, which can kill trees directly and sterilize soils with cascading effects such as, um, you know, landslides or soil erosion. Some of our work has demonstrated increasing trends in fire frequency, size, and season length. And a lot of other research links changing fire characteristics explicitly to climate change. Work by, for example, you know, Denison et al., Westerling, Abatzaglou and Williams, those are some of the classics. So we're also seeing trees are, that are more susceptible to beetle infestation in drought conditions, and that's work led by Sarah Hart, among others. And so the big question that you pose here is, you know, can forests adapt to these changing disturbance conditions? And there's a lot of evidence that they cannot. Um, just for example, research led by Stevens Ruman, they looked at seedling presence, uh, seedling presence in a variety of sites occupied by coniferous forests across the Rocky Mountains that had burned from the late 80s to the 2010s, and it spanned environmental gradients, so across a range of elevation and climatological conditions. And they found that sites without regrowth doubled after 2000, so from 19% to 32%. And that coincides with increased temperatures and droughts. So we're seeing less regeneration over time. Um, and even beyond the Rocky Mountains, replanting is becoming more critical with climate change because we're not seeing that natural regeneration. Uh, and that's because climate change, again, is making threats to forests more severe or extreme. So it's estimated now that natural regeneration may only happen about 40% of the time. And so planting would be required in those other areas in order for forests to reestablish. Um, and some forests may grow back, even if it may take longer than it used to. But even in areas that may grow back naturally, replanting can accelerate regrowth and restore forest function even more quickly. And the speed in which forests recover may be critical in some cases. So not just do they recover, but how quickly do they recover? And for example, there's research led by um, Lou et al. that indicates that almost 40% of people in the U.S. receive more than half of their surface drinking water supply from forested lands. So you can imagine how critical it is to restore that function as soon as possible. Wow. Yeah, I think we're seeing that in New Mexico right now. Nayani, same question to you. I know Megan probably answered a lot of it, but I'm curious, given your research and your sort of drone research, are you seeing these trends in your research, um, in the research that you're doing on the ground? Yeah. So based on my research, that it shows that if the fire is too severe, most of the Western ecoregions will not recover to its background state in terms of both the vegetation and also the carbon. And that uh, based on that, the, and also the, the wildfires and the climate change are circulating their causes. So like if, the, uh, the, if there are more fires, then there are more warming and drier climate and then exacerbate more wildfires. So this continues to happen and then we will not see our original ecosystems back again and they will change into an alternative states. Yeah, so... Nayani, if I could have you expand on that a little bit, then how does replanting end up play playing a role after fire management? How, how much do you just let an ecosystem regrow on its own, and how much is it helpful to have uh, have human involvement uh, in the in the recovery process? 
Yeah, a great question. Um, I can answer this question from the Wi-Fi perspective. Not all the Wi-Fi's are equal. Some fires are too hot and intense. So they can burn almost all trees in some regions. If this happens, there may not be enough seeds available for the regeneration. And then we have to take action before those burnt areas become barren. And those burnt areas are not just trees, they're all full of life. They are habitats for diverse species of trees, the forbs, grass, and also for people, birds, other wildlife, and also the microbes. So the replanting trees play a great role in establishing those lost ecosystems. However, we have to take a great care to find the best places to do not suppress natural regeneration and also not to introduce too many trees, which can soon become another disaster. So I answer considering only the wildfires, but I think the consequences are very similar with the other disturbance like the insect outbreaks. And in terms of, I guess, the, the, the risks that you touch on there, do you end up with the, the, running the risk of creating a, a monoculture of all, all trees the same age, the same species, in a way that you wouldn't end up with if there wasn't that sort of human intervention with the, with the replanting after a fire? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that leads us into our next question. The Forest Service recently announced a goal of planting 1.2 billion trees over the next decade. Um, and there have been mixed reactions to this announcement. Some um, environmental groups have said it's actually a handout to the timber industry, while other groups have said, you know, this is the only way to ensure that the that for our forests stay healthy. So I'm curious to hear from you both. Um, Megan, maybe you can take this one first. As a scientist, do you think that planting this number of trees and sort of upping the amount of replanting that's going on makes sense from a scientific perspective? Yeah, as you mentioned, the Forest Service is planning to scale up their replanting efforts on national forest lands to meet that goal. And most of that will take place in the U.S. West. This is also projected, as a side note, to create nearly 49,000 jobs over the next 10 years, which I think is pretty exciting. Um, So I think the policy piece is actually the first place to start here. This effort is actually a result of the repairing existing public land by adding necessary trees, or the Replant Act, which was signed into law in late 2021 as part of the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, or the Infrastructure Law. So there's a fund called the Reforestation Trust Fund that was established by Congress over 40 years ago with the goal of funding restoration on national forest land. It's funded by tariffs on imported wood products. And so prior to the Replant Act, there was a cap of $30 million per year, per year on the fund, which is basically a restriction on how much funding the Forest Service would receive from those tariffs. And that may have been enough money at the time that that fund was established to address reforestation needs from logging. But it's an insufficient amount now as fires and other disturbances are increasing and as the reforestation needs are really ramping up in response. So revenues from these tariffs have increased since the fund was established, but the funding available to the Forest Service did not increase because of that cap. And so the Replant Act, what it does is remove that cap, basically. And I think this piece is important because it highlights that these funds are already being collected through tariffs on foreign wood products. And the Replant Act doesn't change those arrangements, and it doesn't use additional taxpayer funds. It just allows the Forest Service to access that money so that they can plant these 1.2 billion trees that we're talking about. 
So the funding available prior to the Replant Act was insufficient to meet the reforestation needs of today. And so there's this backlog of area in need of restoration. And I've seen estimates ranging anywhere from almost 2 million acres to 4 million acres. And the Forest Service has only been able to address about 15% of this backlog each year. So the Replant Act provides funding to completely address this restoration backlog within the next 10 years, which is exciting. Um, so that's sort of the policy and the, the funding piece. And as for your question about the timber industry, whether these replanting goals are really just a handout to the timber industry, you know, it is true that timber sales from trees harvested on federal land have more than doubled over the past 20 years. And much of this is done on the idea that harvesting trees or thinning stands can reduce wildfire risk by removing biomass that's a potential fuel. And the premise is that some of these areas have become overgrown and biomass is artificially inflated as a function of decades of fire suppression. So thinning would return those forests to a, a pre-suppression era or a more quote-unquote natural state, right? So that's why we might thin in federally managed forests to meet restoration goals. Some people in the timber industry have actually been critical of these newly announced reforestation goals, claiming that they're not sufficient given the wildfire problem and that logging or thinning and funding for that thinning itself is actually what's needed. So we might only begin to question if or how these 1.2 billion trees that are intended to be planted benefit the timber industry if they're later allowed to be harvested. Uh, and planting practices have actually been changing so that replanted stands are less fire susceptible and thus might be less likely to require thinning at a later date, uh, for example, planting at lower densities. So I don't think that it's a foregone conclusion at all that these planted stands will later be logged. Uh, and if these proposed reforestation efforts are targeted to the areas where they can have the most impact, the goal of replanting trees absolutely makes sense for forest health. Let me ask about that word. We, we toss out thinning a whole lot without getting into what that means. Um, from from your work, uh, does are, and what we're seeing in practice from the Forest Service, do, is, is thinning truly just getting rid of the overgrown or the, uh, the, the, the trees that are too close together while leaving the, the healthier, older biomass? Or does thinning end up looking more like a clear cut more often? And, and how, do you, how, how do you work with forest managers to help them understand where, where that balance is? Yeah, I think that's a great question. The ideal is that thinning removes only enough biomass to reduce fire risk in an area, um, or for example, to prevent crown fires in systems where that is the management response that you want. And so that often should look like clearing underbrush and thinning out smaller trees to have a stand that is um, spaced in a way that's quote unquote more natural, that has a range of tree sizes and ages ultimately, again, to reduce fire risk. In terms of what that actually looks like on the ground, you know, it, it really varies. And I, I think there's a, a deep well of knowledge that the Forest Service is pulling from when they're uh, making management plans in a given area. It's responsive to that specific ecosystem. Um, you've probably heard the expression that we can't thin our way out of this problem, out of the wildfire problem, meaning that the scope and the scale of the wildfire issue has become so severe because of climate change that reducing biomass alone won't be sufficient to address it. Uh, and that's true no matter how the thinning is done. Nayane, I wanted to ask about your research and how that fits into 
some of the the forest resiliency and the thinning and replanting efforts how 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 your science ends up informing the the policy on the ground or how it may end up informing the policy on the ground uh, yeah um so that uh, my post-fire recovery trajectory is modeled against time tell us how many years approximately we have to wait to see a tree regeneration after a fire and how much time an ecoregion would take to recover its forest similar to its unburnt state. For example, I found that based on the satellite data, some ecoregions like the southern Rockies take 10 to 15 years or even more to show a considerable amount of conifer tree regeneration and would take at least like four or five decades to grow trees to come to a state similar to what it was um, unburned before. So, however, I also show that this further delays if there are drought occurrences or the fires are too intense or severe and burn all of the trees, reducing the seed bank. And also, uh, not all the fires burn uniformly the whole area. There can be patches with difference, differences in the tree mortality. These patches may also impact tree regeneration. And our drone data we collect can identify conifer saplings as small as half a meter in height. So we use drone data to find the relationship between sapling distribution and these burned and unburned patches distributed within fires. So the outcome of my research helps to make decisions whether we can wait or help those ecosystems by replanting trees. Because now with the perennial and the frequent fires, before tree establishment happens, grass and shrubs can invade those burnt areas and can cause more fires. I want to ask about giant sequoias, and, and either of you can take this one first. Uh, the Forest Service just announced plans it was going to cut down thousands of smaller trees to protect giant sequoias in California. What is your take on that plan is is there good science there um there, there doesn't seem to be a, a consensus that i have seen yet on whether this is likely to help help save the sequoias or um, if this is again a, a a logging industry handout so we call this biomass removal or forest thinning and the cutting trees to save trees is not a new thing so excessive tree growth and dead plant debris can create unsafe fire conditions and allow for fires to burn hotter, longer, and spread further. So cutting down trees can keep forests healthy and resilient to disturbance like both wildfire and insect outbreaks. Forest thinning happens usually with great care, knowing like how many trees are and from where they have to be removed, not to disturb the natural environment and also its functions. Uh, tree mortality from wildfires or the beetle infestation are mostly not like that. So my opinion is that uh, most of the uh, time the wildfires or the beetle disturb and fragment the natural ecosystem and its functions more than by the control thinning. So Megan, let's hear from you on that one too. Do, do you sort of agree? Do you have anything to add? Yeah, I, um, I'll just... Second, that this is a case of sort of cutting trees to save trees. And giant sequoias are iconic, right? And they're under pretty extreme threat from fire. So they've historically haven't been affected by fire. They have thick bark, for example. 
but that's changed in recent years. So about 20% of them have been lost to wildfire over only the past couple of years. And that's likely due to climate change and also a buildup of undergrowth from fire suppression. And so the proposed efforts that you mentioned are targeted on some fraction of the existing groves, I think 12 of the existing 37 groves, and involve removing small trees, but also other vegetation that could make the fire that does occur, occur there more severe. And that's also happening in tandem with prescribed burns. And again, the idea is that removing dense stands of smaller trees or other vegetation would reduce fire risk. And I think it's important to note that this is related to efforts that go beyond the giant sequoia specifically. So the Biden administration wants to double the forest acreage, either thinned or treated with prescribed burns to 6 million acres annually. And the Forest Service often speaks to reforesting in the right place at the right time with the right species at appropriate scales. And that applies here as well. So thinning and prescribed burns conducted in the right way can absolutely help meet management goals. And this can be effective in some areas, like pine and mixed conifer forests at lower elevations, for example. Those areas would have had frequent low-severity fires historically, and so removing biomass may be an effective response to the decades of fire suppression. Research led by Stevens, for example, has demonstrated increased forest resilience in low-elevation forests that did not have fire suppression. But there are, of course, instances where cutting down trees is not an appropriate strategy, and that would be anywhere where reducing biomass does not reduce fire or other risk. Um, studies suggest that thinning cannot be a singular strategy across the West. Uh, research led by Curtis Bradley found that forests that had been selectively logged actually experienced more severe fires. And this is across about 1,500 fires over three decades that they looked at. The least severely burned forests were actually those with strong protection where logging or thinning did not occur, which is a little counterintuitive. And regardless of the effectiveness of removing biomass, there's also research led by Tanya Schoenagel that highlights the scale of the problem. So between 2001 and 2015, the Forest Service spent over $3 billion to thin what amounts to a tiny fraction of the U.S. West, really so small that the treated area only has about a 1% chance in any given year of encountering a wildfire. So the effort would have to be ramped up considerably to cover sufficient area, even if thinning reliably reduced fire severity. So can thinning affect regional wildfire trends? I mean, maybe not, right? But it can be effective to protect targeted and prioritized resources like the iconic giant sequoia or, or like people's homes, for example. Well, I'm glad that we're on this topic because my next question um, is about different types of fire mitigation. You know, we hear about all sorts of ways that we could potentially mitigate fire. Um, NPR has had a story on goats thinning forests, um, or, or I think specifically operating in the wildland urban interface to sort of reduce, um, shrubbery and stuff that could cause forests to burn homes. And then there was even a story about wild horses, um, being put into wilderness to sort of reduce risk of wildfire and wildfire severity. Both of those cases would be uh, mechanical thinning done by animals. And, and then there's, you know, um, we've heard about beavers, like um, reintroduction of beavers being a good way to help mitigate fires. So I'm curious to hear from both of you, um, is there merit to these other proposals? And what do you see as sort of the best way to do fire mitigation? Um, one advantage of the goats is that they are adorable. <laughs> 
Um, but in addition to that, you know, all these strategies are helpful specifically for reducing biomass that could be a potential fuel load for wildfire. And the appropriate choice or even how effective each of these practices will be depends on the forest. Um, but I'll say that the best practices for fire mitigation in forests will necessarily be responsive to changing eco-environmental conditions, meaning that human behavior or management strategies need to change in response to the underlying ecology. So there isn't one strategy that's best for every place or even for one place at every time. And one example of this is the Black Hills in South Dakota and Wyoming. There was extensive logging there in the late 1800s and early 1900s. But much of that forest had regrown by the late 1900s. And then aggressive thinning and logging took place in response to a pine beetle outbreak in the late 90s. And this might have been an appropriate strategy at the time. But then thinning continued even after the outbreak ended and the forest growth rate simply couldn't keep up with the logging. And the Forest Service itself conducted research that demonstrated that logging would need to be cut by at least half to be sustainable. And this is an example of when the environment changed Recovery rates were reduced, but human behavior or management, in this case logging, did not change in response. Uh, the best practices for fire mitigation in forests would also be responsive to the political, social, economic conditions at a site that might make a given fire mitigation strategy more or less feasible or effective. Um, Nani, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I totally agree with Megan. The whole point of implementing these methods are not only to reduce the fire risk or the disturbing risk, but also to uh, maintain the natural forest the structure or the species distribution or the habitat sen sensitive. And uh, so it all again depends on the ecosystem. And each of these methods has both pros and cons. For example, the control burns or the mechanical thinning can have downsides such as the effects on soil, the water, or the sensitive habitats. And in terms of goat or uh, beaver or wild horse, we can use them in places where they are found or in places um, they are authorized to live. But in, again, we have to implement long-term measures to manage them once they are in the forest, not to over-reduce the fuel and also to like manage the problems that can cause by the overpopulation later on. So I think like, yeah, that everything has pros and cons. So obviously if there's one thing I'm taking away from this comp from this conversation, it's that when it comes to wildfire mitigation and forest management, it's complicated and the correct path is almost always site specific and that what we the way we manage forests has to change because of climate impacts so if you're the forest service and you have the forest industry that would like some amount of certainty of okay here's our targets here's how much we think we're going to be opening up for harvesting any given year is the policy implication here that the Forest Service needs to be more nimble or looking at shorter time horizons in making decisions and not locking in uh, not locking in targets five, ten years down the road? Because if we don't know what the science is going to look like, can we plan that far out or do we need to be more nimble and only planning one or two years out based on how quickly the climate is changing? That is such a good question. And I think uh, nimble is a, a great word for what's needed in this moment, just constantly being responsive to changing conditions because they are they are changing rapidly. Um, I'll note 
in relation to that, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, or the USDA, under which the Forest Service is nested, just came out with their climate adaptation plan late last year, which is centered on an iterative, sorry, which is centered on an iterative process of assessment, planning, implementation, and monitoring and evaluation. So in this way, they're being responsive to climate change and creating a system in which they can determine if what they're doing is actually working. And this kind of nimbleness will be essential as we move into an uncertain future. I think we're, we're starting to wrap up here. So I, I want to look to the future. Um, what is next in your fields? What is coming on the horizon that, uh, that, that may transform the way we understand science management? And I think this is probably... For Nayani, first, you're you're the specialist in in both drones and satellites. Are there are there other technologies on the horizon that may may transform the way we do basic forest science? Or Megan, on that one, either of you? Yeah, I don't. I'm not sure about new technologies, but I will say that there's a wealth of geospatial data that's available, both about existing disturbances and their characteristics as well as forest state metrics. So what that means is that we have data that can tell us what disturbance looks like, and we can analyze the patterns and processes of disturbance. And we have data that can help us understand what the forest looks like and how the forest is changing in response um, to those disturbances. And so rather than new technology, I think the way forward is really taking advantage or harnessing the data revolution, as it's often called. So taking advantage of this existing data um, using existing and new geospatial frameworks and models to really understand some of the nuance and these patterns that we're seeing and the ways that disturbances are going to affect our forests, including creating predictive frameworks and forecasting what our forests will look like in the future. Fun with big data. I will say from the technology side, the use of drones is proliferating in the ecological field, which I think is really exciting. And so something that both Nayani and I are working on is integrating sort of up the column of observations from field-based data that's time-intensive to collect, but gives you a really fine-scale detail on the ground, to drone-based data, which is a little bit um, different type of information that you can capture than if you're actually measuring trees, for example, on the ground with a, with a measuring tape, uh, and then scaling all the way up to plane-based or to satellite data. So how can we take those fine-scale measurements um, that often mean that our studies are sort of place-based and case studies and scale it up to something like drone or satellite data so that we can see how generalizable those results are that we're finding uh, that are site-specific? And Nayani, it sounds like that's kind of the stuff that you're working on. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. And then um, Megan gave a complete answer. I have only one thing to add is that... um, we have a lot of data and also like to make it perfect, we also need to connect the different communities without doing the individual um, re- the research, like the atmospheric science community and the social science community and the data science community and the remote sensing scientists, everyone together, because we see in different uh, perspective of these disturbances and what it causes and the consequences. So I think like bring, bringing everyone together would help us better answer those problems. Hmm. Yes, that that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Get all the scientists in one room. <laughs> Can I add something to that? I, yeah, sure. So the um, 
The Forest Service, I think, is really in line with those goals, too. So their national reforestation strategy, uh, one of their guiding principles is to lead with science and technology. So meaning that they acknowledge that to address this massive issue of reforestation needs, the best available science will be necessary. And the Forest Service has a robust research program itself, as well as robust research partnerships and I think our hope is that our work can contribute to that body of knowledge concerning reforestation strategy, whether by planning for natural regeneration or tree planting, uh, and specifically with regards to spatial prioritization. Where can we plant to produce the biggest impact and where might, might regrow naturally? Great. Well, Megan, Nayani, thank you both so much for being with us today and sharing all of your expertise. For the good news this week, I'm going with the recent news that the Bureau of Reclamation may be stepping in to save the Colorado River after playing a game of chicken with the seven Colorado River basin states for the past year or so. The Bureau filed paperwork last week in the Federal Register indicating it plans to draft a plan that will include details of the proposed cuts, which will impact the lower basin states. Those cuts will basically alter the interim guidelines all seven basin states agreed to in 2007, which were supposed to last until 2025. But climate change is hastening the need to update those guidelines, which specify how much water each state can use. While the prospect of major cuts is bad news, the good news is that the feds are stepping in to ensure the dams at Lake Mead and Lake Powell are able to continue producing hydropower and that the reservoirs continue to operate as functional water storage rather than giant useless puddles. You know, at some point here, I think we should just have the lay it all out episode where we just let folks who, which one do you want to keep? Lake Powell or Lake Mead? If you can't keep them both, which one do you keep and which one do you just drain and restore? And really, let, let's just let everyone have at it and have, have the big, really hard conversation. But maybe not today. All right, that is it for today's episode. If you have comments, questions, if you want to feel like Mead first, if you want to feel like Powell first, you know where to find us. Podcast at westernpriorities.org. And hey, don't forget to vote in the midterms, Election Day, coming up on November 8th. Thanks so much to Nayani and Megan for sharing their forest knowledge with us. And thank you for listening to The Landscape.